This is episode number 102, Plant-Based for Athletes, with world-famous dietitian Brenda Davis. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. Hello, hello, and thanks for hanging out with me on this fine day. Maybe you're driving in your car, maybe you're doing some fun laundry, or maybe you're out on a run or a bike ride. But irregardless, today is going to be an awesome episode. It's all the questions that I get asked on a regular basis about plant-based for athletes. And even if you're not 100% plant-based and you just want to add in more plant-based foods, there is so much information out there and getting the right information and knowing how to be at your best so that you can perform at your top level is so key. Today's episode is with Brenda Davis and she was episode, I believe she was the first episode I ever recorded on this podcast and that was about two years ago. So we're on episode 102. There's 52 weeks in a year. So we're almost at two years on this podcast, which is crazy and hard to believe. So thank you so much, guys, for making this podcast possible. Thank you for listening. And thank you so much for sharing the show with your friends, for the screenshots. And if you're enjoying the show and you want other people to find it, please leave us a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. It only takes a couple of seconds. Hit five stars, leave a message. I read every single one of them, and they are very much appreciated. So today's episode, Brenda Davis, she is one of the top authorities and dietitians in plant-based nutrition. And I first found out about her because when I changed my diet about six years ago, I bought this book called Becoming Vegan. I think everyone interested in plant-based nutrition should own this book because it is the most comprehensive, the most handy book you could possibly use or have. It's like an encyclopedia it's amazing. I mean, you can go to the index and look up anything and you can find tons of different information in this book. And I reference it pretty frequently. So she is actually the co-author of Becoming Vegan. She's a vegetarian hall of famer. She's written many, many books, and she's an expert in reducing the world's type two diabetes problems with plant-based diets. Brenda teaches lifestyle medicine courses all over the world, including places like Lithuania, She's been flown by the Prince of Saudi Arabia to Saudi Arabia to consult on plant-based diets. She is a highly sought-after speaker, traveling several times per month all over the world to speak at pretty much all the biggest conferences on lifestyle medicine and plant-based nutrition. Brenda is the vision of health and fitness. She can do, I've heard stories about her doing push-ups on stage, showing up men. She goes to the gym religiously for several hours a day. She does yoga. Brenda eats probably the most perfect diet. Uh, every time I'm around her, it's like, wow, she just eats the most clean, healthy, beautiful meals, and she makes up all of her own recipes. She recently released a cookbook called the Kicking Diabetes Cookbook, and it is to help people with their diabetes, but Matt and I actually eat out of that cookbook pretty regularly because these cookbooks have the cleanest, most well-rounded plant-based meals that you could possibly eat. And the food in it is super good. She even let me use one of her recipes in my new cookbook, The Plant Power Tribe, and it's a beet dill hummus. There's so many good recipes in her book. And also check out The Plant Power Tribe Cookbook if you're interested in my cookbook. 
You can get her books on Amazon or you could get them through her website, brendadavisrd.com. And if you want to check out my cookbook, go to moxieandgrit.com, M-O-X-Y and grit.com and find the Plant Power Tribe cookbook. Even though I've been studying plant-based nutrition for six years and I've had a number of amazing experts in that field on this podcast, I still learned a lot from this episode with Brenda. In this episode, you're going to learn why keto diets are dangerous, how to eat for weight loss, rice and arsenic, the final verdict on gluten, when to buy organic, everything you need to know about iron, supplements, how much soy is safe, bean digestibility, and the best anti-inflammatory food. So if that's not enough for you, then you can check out some of the other episodes I've recorded on plant-based nutrition, but there are so many awesome things to learn in this episode with Brenda Davis. I want to take a second to thank our awesome podcast sponsor, Kuat Racks. And Kuat Racks are out of Springfield, Missouri. And I first actually saw them many years ago, maybe almost 10 years ago, when I was doing a race in Arkansas called the Washita Challenge. And it was really cool to meet the owners, especially whenever they were first starting up their business. But they're a thriving company that creates high-end, awesomely engineered hitch racks, roof racks, and accessories that push the envelope of innovation. And everyone at Kuat rides, so they all use their products. They all know what it's like to be a cyclist. And some of them are really into the outdoors as well. So they are doing things like kayaking and skiing, and their racks reflect that. So check out the racks if you're in the market for a new one. Go to kuatracks.com, K-U-A-T-Racks.com. And last but not least, we are going to be doing pre-orders on some new Moxie and Grit socks. I'm really excited about these new designs, and it's going to be really fun to see your reaction to them. So make sure you're following along on social media, at Moxie and Grit, or just my social media, at Sanyaluni1. And can't wait to share these designs with you. Okay, let's get into it with Brenda Davis. Welcome back to the show, Brenda. Oh, thank you, Sonia. Great to be back. It's so funny. It's been like almost exactly two years to the day when you first came over for episode one. Uh, Isn't that amazing? Wow, I'm so honored. I know. And like we became really good friends after that. So that's been just so cool. It marks our friendship. I know. I love it. (laughs) And we, we also have Matt here today. Hello, everyone. And Matt's the one who basically taught me about plant-based diets and kind of convinced me or gave me the information so I could convince myself to change my diet. So it's fun to have him here too. (laughs) That's great. So today I really wanted to focus, we've done lots of podcasts with uh, all these amazing plant-based experts and everyone should definitely go back and listen to our first podcast that we recorded. But I really wanted to emphasize plant-based diets for athletes and specifically a lot of the questions that people ask repeatedly about this. So a place that I want to get started is talking about paleo and keto diets, because a lot of times athletes, even endurance athletes, will try to switch to these diets to lose weight or to burn fat so they don't need to eat as much while they're training or racing. So I heard a really great speech that you did, I think it was in New York, about this. So I I think this is a really great place to start. Yeah, I'm really concerned about people sort of going gung-ho with keto because what a lot of people forget, I think, with keto is that in order to put your body in a state of ketosis, you're eating about 5% carbohydrates, 
That's about 20 grams of carbohydrates a day, maybe 25 or 30 at the most. And if you think about that, what what you have to do is minimize your intake of plant foods. Because plant foods essentially are, you know, even leafy greens, they contain between 60 and 90 or 92% of calories from carbohydrates. You know, the primary macronutrient in plants is carbohydrate. And so in order to achieve that state of ketosis, you can't eat a lot of plants. And I know a lot of people say, oh, you can eat tons of leafy greens and so on. You know, leafy greens have only about a gram of carbohydrates per cup. So you could, you know, possibly eat 20 grams of leafy greens. But if you eat a cup of blueberries, well, there's your 20 grams of carbohydrates. If you eat an apple, well, you're over the top. You've got 30 grams of carbohydrates or a banana, or a pear. I mean, you just, is very, very little room for that. And if you think about what in foods protects people, what gives us the best advantage for cancer risk reduction, for diabetes risk reduction, for heart disease risk reduction, we're talking about fiber and phytochemicals and antioxidants and plant sterols and stanols and the the enzymes in plants that help to convert phytochemicals into their bioactive metabolites or their active forms. And, you know, all of these things that are so highly protective. And what you're doing when you go keto is you're minimizing those things. It makes no sense to me at all. Uh, Why would you want to minimize the very things that confer the greatest protection to human health? So what are you eating? Well, you're eating a lot of fat. You know, the diet is probably at least 70, 75, 80% of calories from fat in order to achieve ketosis. And so, you know, when you fast, you're going into ketosis. So it's like you're fooling your body into thinking it's fasting because you're depriving it of our primary macronutrient carbohydrates. And so then your body has to produce these ketones to supply some energy. But there are actually cells in the body that cannot use fat for energy. So for example, red blood cells must use carbohydrates. Glucose is the only fuel. Liver cells must use carbohydrates. And so there are certain, you can't eat none And your body, of course, will attempt to produce as much as it can. But eventually, of course, your stores are gone and you end up living more on ketones. So for me, I think I find it very concerning because I fear in the long term, people are really going to be increasing the risk for chronic diseases that, you know, as it is, are killing about 70% of the population, Uh, diabetes and heart disease and cancer and so forth. So that's not what we want to achieve. What we want to achieve is a massive reduction in our risk of those diseases. And so you really need to think about this. Think about, you know, there are lots of things that work for weight loss. I can remember in the 20s, all the advertisements for cigarettes, trying to push cigarettes as the key to a lean body. And it went over very, very well. And so what we know is that cigarettes and smoking actually do help people maintain a lean body. It, you know, it changes your metabolism in a favorable way. Does that mean you should smoke? No. <laughs> <laughs> the cost is lung cancer. And I think we're going to see something very similar with a keto diet. I absolutely adamantly opposed to people sacrificing those elements of the diet that are most protective in order to lose weight. And we know from the studies, 
that keto diets actually don't have a favorable impact on your training, and especially for endurance athletes, because you're minimizing your glycogen stores. So it, it just, to me, is just silliness. But anyway, that's my thoughts. I've had some friends that have tried the keto diet and seem to find success with how they feel and, and they're losing weight. And I wonder if part of that is because they don't actually achieve ketosis because it's hard to actually follow the diet properly. And so I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. If it's just possibly people reducing maybe the, the higher or more refined foods and maybe getting to maybe even more of a balanced diet than they would have before, even though they're thinking they're actually eating a keto diet? Yeah. So when people go uh, towards a keto diet, there are a couple of good things that happen. One of the good things is they get rid of processed foods, a lot of processed foods. So no longer are you eating any cookies or cakes or, you know, any of these sugar or refined carbohydrate foods, they're gone. And so that's for everyone. That's a good thing. And so that could be part of it. But also when people lose weight, they almost always feel more energetic and feel better. And that's, you know, across the board, no matter how you're losing the weight, you tend to feel a bit better when you're losing weight if you're overweight. What else did you ask in that? Well, one? <laughs> I think it's, it, yeah, no, I think you, you answered the question, but I think a lot of people have a hard time thinking about the long-term implications of probably just about anything in their lives, but especially their diet. So if they see a short-term you know, improvement in the way they look or feel, oh, this must be amazing. I keep going. That's not, right. Not even understanding that they're yeah. doing long-term damage. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And what about the people who have like brain tumors or for brain health? Because I've seen studies showing that it actually helps you if you have certain health issues. Is that true? Well, the studies on brain health have been done mostly on animals, one of the studies, if I recall correctly, I think on rats or mice, showed some improvement in, I think it was brain tumors and shrinkage. But in humans, it can be a very different story. There are some cancer cells that thrive with glucose, and there are others that actually thrive with ketones. And so we're discovering that uh, it's not always what people think it's going to be. And so I'd be very, very cautious with that. So if one of the reasons that people are going on a keto diet is for weight loss, and this was also a question that somebody submitted for this podcast, is how can I lose weight? And people may or may not be on a plant-based diet, and maybe they just want to switch to a plant-based diet to lose weight. But like, if they're trying to lose weight, what's the best and most healthy way? Well, I would say to really focus on the foods that are most nutrient-dense. And so we're talking about eating a lot of non-starchy vegetables, leafy greens, and beans. And so that's, if you think about grains, for example, you need to control your intake of those things that are more concentrated in carbohydrates because they're more concentrated in calories. So, and if you're eating grains, not only do you want to limit your portions a little bit, but you want to stick to intact whole grains. So you don't want the grains ground up and made into bread and muffins and cakes and all of those things. You want to be eating them intact, which means kamut berries, quinoa, oat groats, just pretty much as they're picked off the plant, perhaps the outer husk removed and that's it. And when you eat grains in that way, you usually you limit the portion you're eating anyway, because you have to chew a lot. <laughs> and so 
essentially you're wanting to fill your plate. I would say almost three quarters of your plate with different types of vegetables. Controlling portions of the starchy vegetables, though, any of the potatoes and sweet potatoes and squashes and so forth, controlling the portions, a little bit of that. What's a portion supposed to look like of those? So, you know, for you, Sonia, because you're burning so many calories in your exercise, you could have, you know, a couple of sweet potatoes and be fine. But for someone who's overweight, who's far less active, a portion might be a half a cup. And so you're wanting, you know, two or three portions of the concentrated carbohydrates, maybe one per meal for more expedited weight loss. And the other thing, so there are two things you need to be concerned about. You need to be concerned about the real concentrated carbs, but you also need to be concerned about the concentrated fats. So a a tablespoon of oil is 120 calories. You put that on something and you haven't increased the volume of what you're eating at all, but you've increased the calories considerably and you don't necessarily affect satiety that much because that volume is so, you know, minimally increased. So you want to be careful of how much of the concentrated high fat foods you're eating, avocados and nuts and seeds and so forth, that, you know, an ounce or two a day would be sort of a reasonable amount. And I know there are several people that are proponents of not using any of those things when you're trying to lose weight, especially if you're a bit of a food addict and you tend to overconsume when you consume those kinds of foods. For people that can manage to have an ounce or two, it's not a problem, but you do need to be a little cautious. And so what I would say is a wonderful meal would be a full meal salad where you've got a ton of greens and all the different colors of veggies. You could have some blueberries on top and then some intact grains like kemut berries or barley or something like that or quinoa. Some sort of, you want some sort of protein as well. So a little bit of beans, maybe a half a cup or a cup of beans, a little bit of tofu and a few seeds on top. And that makes a really good full meal. I use myself, instead of using oil-based dressings, I make a seed-based dressing. So I might use hemp seeds or some tahini or something like that as the base for the dressing. And uh, so that makes a good meal or a full meal bowl. So you're filling your bowl, you've got a few grains or something like that, some sweet potato or something, and then you've got all kinds of veggies and you're super generous. You can have three or four cups of these lower calorie veggies, asparagus and broccoli and Brussels sprouts and all of these kinds of things. And then your protein, which is, you know, chickpeas or tofu or tempeh or whatever your protein and some sort of sauce, seed-based sauce. These would be really good meals conducive to uh, weight loss. I have a question about rice. Is rice considered a whole grain? Yes, it is, unless it's processed to become white rice. (laughs) So if it's brown rice or black rice or red rice or, you know, these are more whole grain rices. The biggest concern about rice right now is the arsenic content. Oh. And so rice, if it's grown in certain areas where the arsenic content of the soil is high because of it being a former cotton field or something like that, then you can easily exceed the sort of upper limits for arsenic. And for small children, that could be a a big deal. There are a lot of cultures that use rice as a dietary staple, and it's consumed three times a day. 
And if the rice is coming from one of these areas, that's really quite a concern. One of the things, you can do a couple of things to reduce the arsenic content or to choose rice that isn't high arsenic rice. So in the United States, in the sort of south, I guess southeast, I'm, you know, of part of the U.S. where cotton fields were, there's a higher risk if the rice is coming from that area. I think the rice from California would be a little safer. You can do a search on the internet for, you know, lower arsenic rices. The second thing you can do above and beyond getting it from a source where it is lower in arsenic is to actually cook it in a very strange way. So normally with rice, you do two parts water to one part rice. You cook it till all the water's gone. Well, you can do a different kind of cooking where you're actually boiling your two cups in six or eight cups of water. And then you have to drain it. You boil it like crazy. And once it's done, you just, you drain it and you get rid of probably, I don't know, at least half the arsenic that way. So that's another option. But the other thing that I tell people is just don't make rice a dietary staple. Vary your grains more. Uh, have quinoa, have kamut berries, have, you know, whatever different types of grains that you enjoy, barley or millet or whatever, uh, more often and rice a little less often. So it doesn't really matter if it's brown, red, or or what the case well, is. It's it, just where it's grown yeah, and where it, it was grown it, before. It, no, and you're right. As a matter of fact, organic rice is no lower in arsenic. It can actually even be higher. <laughs> so an organic rice, brown rice, it's, there's just no protection that way. Now, from a nutritional perspective, of course, the whole grain rice has more minerals and more fiber and more phytochemicals. And the, the depth of the color affects the phytochemicals significantly. So um, a red rice or a black rice will have significantly more phytochemical content than a brown rice. And what if somebody's trying to like not lose weight, but they're just eating to maintain their weight as an athlete and to recover better? What should their plate look like? Well, it should still sound similar to those that I described with the exception of you're going to be a little more generous with your starch portion. So whatever you're putting on the bottom of your glory bowl or on the top of your salad, you, instead of a quarter cup of your, you know, grain mixture, you're going to have a full cup, you know, have more beans, have more of the, the heavier foods. You'll be more generous with the avocado. You'll be more generous with the dressing that goes on top. And with all of these more, the nuts and seeds that you're you're topping it with the starchy uh, sweet potatoes, you can afford more of those things. And so you've got a heartier meal and that's kind of fun. <laughs> I like generous. That sounds good. <laughs> so I noticed that most of those grains, if not all of those grains you mentioned are gluten-free. So what is your stance or thoughts on gluten for athletes? Yeah. So actually a lot of the grains I mentioned aren't gluten-free. So camut oh. isn't, barley isn't, Rice is, and millet and quinoa, all of those are. Buckwheat isn't. So it's interesting if you think about gluten-containing grains, you're really talking about wheat and the wheat family. So kamut and spelt would be gluten-containing. Barley, of course, and rye are the main gluten-containing grains. So there are tons of other grains uh, for people that are have celiac disease or are somewhere along this gluten sensitivity spectrum. You know, it wasn't so very long ago that we thought that people were either celiac or gluten was fine for them. And about 1% of the population has celiac disease. But we've since come to learn that probably six, seven, eight percent of the population 
is somewhere along the gluten sensitivity spectrum, which means that they don't have celiac disease, but they react to gluten in a negative way. And so they are best also to minimize or avoid gluten. They don't have to be quite as diligent as a person with celiac disease necessarily would have to be, but they still would want to be minimizing it. So my thoughts for people that aren't gluten sensitive, which is most of the population, 94, 95% of, you know, the whole population probably can tolerate gluten, is that uh, these grains, the wheat and spelt and kemut and barley and, and rye, are really nutritious, quite high protein, high fiber grains. And they can actually contribute very substantially to the quality of the diet. And I think they're very good foods. What we do wrong is we take those foods, remove most of what is of value to human health, which is packaged in the outer husk, the bran and the germ, and we remove those. We turn it into flour and we make a bunch of you know, processed flour products out of these things. And, and that's not, not a good idea. So best if we eat these grains intact, which means all of the components are there, we have to chew them, and they're, they're wonderful. Now, the other thing that we need to be a little bit concerned about is that we tend to use a product called Roundup, which contains glyphosate, to dry grains, to expedite the drying process, to get them on the market quicker. And the glyphosate is actually quite a toxic chemical, and we know that it's just not something we want to be ingesting. And so the only way around that, other than not eating the grains, is to choose organic. And so uh, when I'm purchasing my oat groats or kemut berries or black barley or regular barley, I always look for organic. And it is a little bit more expensive. But if you buy it in a large volume, uh, then it, it makes it much more affordable and, and it's really affordable compared to a lot of other foods anyway. So that's the one thing I would say, stick to intact, stick to organic. That's awesome advice. So I had people submit some questions for this podcast and this is, I think, a really relevant and great question because through our Plant Power Tribe Facebook group, I've heard this before and Matt and I both have asked this question so this person is uh, struggling with low red blood cell count, low hemoglobin, low B12 issues, and having a lot of fatigue, and they eat a plant-based diet. So they want to know how they can raise those numbers without eating meat and sticking to their plant-based diet. Yeah, so it's super interesting. With B12, it's a very simple thing. Plants are not reliable sources, period, end of story. You must get B12 from either fortified foods or supplements. And in fact, according to the Institute of Medicine, who uh, develops all of our recommended dietary allowances, anyone over 50 needs to get their B12 from fortified foods or supplements. And the reason being that in animal products, vitamin B12 is bound to protein. And in order to cleave the B12 off of the protein it's bound to, you need to have a certain level of stomach acid and you need to be producing enough of the enzymes that are responsible for that task. And in people over 50, those both decline. And so it's estimated that 10 to 30% of people over 50 
don't do very well at cleaving B12 off, off of protein. So in, in those cases, they have to get their B12 from fortified foods and supplements, just as vegans or plant-based people do. And so what do I recommend? Well, consistently, I would say to be getting at least probably four to 10 micrograms a day. And, and you want to be getting that in two or more meals from fortified foods. And even if you do that, I would take a once a week supplement of B12 of about a thousand micrograms. You might say, well, the, the RDA is 2.4 micrograms. Why do I need a thousand? And the reason is, is that when you take fairly large amounts of B12, you only absorb probably 0.5 to 1%. So you absorb just a tiny amount of it. So you need to take in a little bit more. If you're not using any fortified foods, so no fortified non-dairy milks or veggie meats or any of these, you know, B12, or I'm sorry, nutritional yeast that's fortified with B12, if you're not consuming those things, then I would up from once a week to at least two or three times a week, the B12 supplement. Now, iron is another story. So iron, it's a very interesting story, actually. What we know is people eating plant-based don't have more iron deficiency anemia than people who are omnivores. About 40% of the iron in meat comes in the form of what we call heme iron. And heme is just blood. So it's iron that's associated with the blood in meat. About probably 55 or 65% or 60% of the iron is non-heme iron. All of the iron in plants is non-heme iron. Obviously, because there's not, or I guess I would say almost always, there is some heme iron in the root nodules of soy plants, for example, but very, very minimal amounts. Now, the difference between the heme and non-heme iron is that heme iron, you absorb, you know, very, very efficiently. Your body doesn't have a control to shut the absorption off if you don't need it. It just gets absorbed and gets absorbed quite rapidly. Whereas non-heme iron, your intestinal tract really controls the absorption of non-heme iron. And so you will absorb how much you need. If you're iron deficient, your absorption could increase 10 times. If you're iron replete, your absorption diminishes. And even when it's absorbed, you might absorb a, you know, a molecule of iron with a thousand atoms that are slowly released as you need them. It's quite interesting. Now, what's even more interesting is that heme iron and the iron that comes from meat can act as a pro-oxidant, especially when it's at higher levels in your blood. So it can increase oxidative damage in your body, which is not a good thing where chronic disease is concerned. It can actually increase your risk of heart disease, cancer, diabetes, and that's all been quantified. You see numbers like 25 to 50% increase in heart disease rate with high levels of this type of iron in, in your bloodstream. And so with the non-heme iron, it doesn't act as a pro-oxidant and it's slowly released. So it actually helps to protect you against iron overload and this oxidative stress. Now for people that aren't getting enough, that's where we have to really look at what you're eating. So there are a few things that you need to think about, really probably four big things. One is that you wanna maximize your intake of iron. 
if you're, you know, low in iron. So you need to get familiar with the plant-based iron sources. The best plant-based iron source is legumes. So lentils are loaded with iron. One of the things that I would do, I do a breakfast bowl every morning with oat groats and kamut berries and whatever grains I feel like and all sorts of fruits and some non-dairy yogurt and some nuts and seeds on top and so forth. One of the things that I do is I use lentils in with my grains when I cook them. So I'll do half, like right now, my grain legume mixture in the fridge is half uh, black barley and half black lentils. And so I've got this mixture in the fridge. It goes on my salads. It goes in my breakfast bowl. And so that gives you a boost of iron at breakfast. A lot of people, it's just fruit and fruit's not very high in iron and, and grains and grains aren't necessarily high in iron either. So you, I mean, quinoa has a little more, some of the pseudo grains, but by adding those lentils in, you think it's funny fruit and lentils, but you don't really taste it. Lentils you flavor with, you know, often with Indian style spices or whatever to make it taste great. But if you do them plain... You can add them to a breakfast bowl and barely even notice them. So the, doing things like that. The other thing is when you're using fruits in your breakfast bowl, you want to make sure you've got vitamin C rich fruits because vitamin C. So that's, you know, step number one is eating the iron containing foods, the legumes, the seeds, hemp seeds, pumpkin seeds are high in iron, cashews, pistachios. So you get some good high iron nuts and seeds. And so these are your main sources in the plant-based diet. And then of course you get bits from vegetables and from grains and so forth. So at each meal, you want lots of the iron containing foods. Number two, you want to increase your intake of things in the diet that enhance the absorption of iron. So vitamin C and organic acids are powerful. And so vitamin C, red peppers in your dinner bowl, but in your breakfast bowl, strawberries and citrus fruits and, you know, your vitamin C rich fruits. And then the other things that surprisingly can actually help to enhance iron absorption are turmeric, garlic, carrots, the carotenoids can help a little bit. So these are all things that can help. The number three, and this is one that you really need to be aware of because this is hugely important. There are a number of factors in the diet that reduce the absorption of iron. And probably the biggest culprits are phytates and polyphenolic compounds. Calcium can reduce iron absorption. Dairy products reduce iron absorption. So we need to be really aware of that. So now when we talk about phytates, the phytate bomb, the biggest, most concentrated source is wheat bran. You do not want to be sprinkling wheat bran on your breakfast bowl which people used to do all the time to prevent constipation and such. This is not a good idea, especially if you're eating a plant-based diet. Don't sprinkle bran on anything. You can reduce the absorption of iron from a meal by up to 90% by sprinkling bran on. You can eat the intact whole grain. There's bran in it, but don't sprinkle bran on top. And then the other thing is for phytates is you can reduce the phytate content of your food by soaking, sprouting, roasting, yeasting. Even when you make bread, you break down phytates. So when you're cooking beans, if you soak the beans for a day 
before you cook them and drain them, soak and drain and soak and drain, you're reducing phytates significantly, and then the cooking will further reduce the phytates. So that's, you know, something just to be aware of. And then the second is the polyphenolic compounds. And they're really concentrated in teas, green teas and black teas, but even some herbal teas, polyphenolic compounds, even in hot chocolate, they're in wines, there are all kinds of places you see polyphenolics, but the biggest source is teas. So if you drink tea with your meal, as we do in many in Asian culture, there's often green tea with the meal, you can reduce the absorption of iron by 50 to 90% again. So if you're low in iron, you really need to get that out of your meals. So what do you do if you love tea? Well, you separate your meals from your tea drinking times. So not more than an hour before your meal and at least an hour or two after your meal would be a reasonable time to be consuming that beverage. Does coffee have that as well? Uh, not as much. Okay. So, but a little bit, but not as much. And then the fourth thing is if you're sort of lacto-ovo tendency, be aware that if you replace meat with dairy products, which is step number one for many people who go lacto-ovo vegetarian, instead of meat and potatoes, you're having pasta with cheese sauce, you're having lasagna, you're having grilled cheese sandwiches. These are familiar, comfortable foods. So they're kind of your obvious replacements. But meat is a very rich source of iron, whereas dairy is a very poor source of iron. So you're trading out a good source of iron for a poor source of iron, but dairy has this sort of double whammy because it also inhibits the absorption of iron. So we need to be very careful of that. You don't want to replace meat with dairy. You want to replace meat with legumes. That's your key. So doing all of those things. And for children, the other thing to be very aware of is is children who are born premature are born with very low iron stores. And they should be given probably two milligrams per kilogram of iron drops from birth to about 12 months of age. For children who are breastfed, probably by four to six months, if they're not getting enough iron through solid foods, they need to be on one milligram per kilogram of iron drops. Iron deficiency in infancy is so, so dangerous. It can compromise brain development. It can cause all sorts of learning disabilities and so forth. Really, really important that parents are, if you're formula feeding, it's iron fortified formula. If you're breastfeeding, when you start solids, you want to start with some high iron foods, iron fortified infant cereal, legumes would be next. And so this is really important, especially for people who want everything au naturel. They don't want to use the iron fortified cereal. This is not something to mess with. You need to get the iron in your child. If you're not using an iron fortified cereal, use iron drops because an infant needs, especially, you know, during the first year of life, they need about 11 milligrams of iron a day. A full grown man needs eight. Okay, just so you see that difference. And I just bring this in. I know it's not, you know, this isn't about athletes, but I think people eating plant-based need to understand how critical it is to get enough iron into children. How would you know, like is, aside from a blood test, how would you know if your child is getting enough iron or, or might need a supplement? Well, that's a really good question. I mean, if you're feeding the child with iron-fortified infant cereal and they're eating plenty of legumes, you're good. 
and you're giving them lots of vitamin C rich foods and a, a wide variety, but you've got the iron fortified. You know, I'm trying to remember how much you need about six tablespoons of iron infant, infant formula, iron fortified to give you 11 milligrams of iron. You need something like 20 some tablespoons of beans, which is like three cups, which no kid will ever eat. You need double or triple that of beef you know, of, of baby strained beef. Uh, you just, you're not going to get enough in your diet. It's a risky if you're not using the infant cereal or doing the iron drops. And I've seen some sad cases, so I just really want to emphasize that. So I want to move on to talking about soy products. And I know that I've personally asked you this before because we both eat soy and people ask me all the time, like, well, I'm not eating meat, so I'm adding soy products in to get more protein. So how much soy is safe for somebody to eat? Well, I know there's a lot of controversy about soy, but what I want to say just, you know, to, to get this out of the way is that there are five blue zones that we know of in the world. And blue zones are places where people live the longest, healthiest lives. And there are more centenarians or people that live to be at least 100 in these blue zones than anywhere else on the planet. So what, what you need to know is two out of the five blue zones include soy as a dietary staple. If soy was the poison food that so many people are making it out to be, I doubt that two out of five blue zones on the planet would be using it as a dietary staple. And in both of those blue zones, they average about two servings a day. So what we know is soy foods reduce risk of certain types of cancer, for example, breast cancer and prostate cancer. It seems to be protective against both of those. It's protective against heart disease. If you replace meat with soy, you reduce stress on the kidneys. So you reduce risk of kidney disease. There are just all kinds of benefits to having soy. Now, the one thing that we need to know as well is that a lot of the soy people are consuming as highly processed. And so we want to be having organic soy and we want to be having soy that's less processed. Edamame, tofu, tempeh, organic fresh pest or organic uh, soy milk made from whole organic soybeans. And so those are really good choices. The veggie meats and cheeses and all of these things that are made from soy are much more highly processed. If you're using them, you want to be choosing organic as well. Uh, so how much soy, to your question? What is considered safe is about two to four servings a day for adults. And I know there was a study in Korea where people who were consuming four to five servings a day who actually were uh, BRCA1, BRCA2 carriers, which is a gene that increases your um, genetic mutation that increases your risk of breast cancer, People consuming the most soy, which was four to five servings a day, had about, I think it was a 62 or 63% risk reduction in breast cancer. And people eating the most meat had, I think it was a 197% increased risk of breast cancer. So, it, you know, even at four to five servings a day, people had really, really good results. We just don't have a lot of people consuming more than four servings a day. So, although I have to say there are some talk about men, you know, having sort of feminization with high soy intake. We actually have two case studies. In one of the studies, I think the guy was eating 12 to 14 servings a day and the other guy was eating 18 to 20. 
you know, just ridiculous amounts of soy. And soy contains phytoestrogens. And so, of course, phytoestrogens are, uh, you know, like a weak estrogen or an anti-estrogen, depending on their, the, uh, you know, their selective estrogen receptor modulators. So in some tissues, they act as a weak estrogen and others as an anti-estrogen. But for children, it's a smaller amount because they're smaller bodies. And so one to two servings a day, depending on the size of the child, is a reasonable amount. The phytoestrogens are in much lower quantity in veggie meats, though. So you don't have to worry about those as much. But tofu, tempeh, edamame all have more phytoestrogens. And I just want to add one more thing, because a lot of people think soy is bad. It increases your risk of breast cancer. And we've known for several years that not only is that not true, it's actually the opposite. People who eat soy during uh, childhood and adolescence have a very significantly reduced lifetime risk of breast cancer. And adults who have breast cancer, who consume soy, actually have a lower rate of recurrence of the breast cancer and survive uh, longer as well. So have less recurrence, lower mortality, basically. And why? Well, some people say, yeah, but it's got estrogens. You'd think it would be bad. But in fact, the human estrogen that drives cancer cell growth, these estrogens in soy actually attach to the receptor sites that that potent human estrogen would attach to and keeps that potent human estrogen off. And so they act like an anti-estrogen protecting women. And so I remember in 2012, the American Institute of Cancer Research actually put out a press release because we had so many studies showing that soy was actually protective against breast cancer that they actually said people don't have to worry about consuming soy anymore if they if they have breast cancer it's it's actually looks like it's protective. And along the lines of soy is the protein conversation. So like how do people know how much protein they need to get and how do they know if they're getting enough? Well, the sort of the RDA for protein is 0.8 grams per kilogram of body weight. Now, if you're an athlete, that's going to go up fairly substantially. So I would say if you're a plant-based person, because the digestibility of plant protein is slightly lower than the digestibility of animal protein, with the exception of something like tofu or peanut butter, something, it's, it's all linked to fiber. So it's the fiber that reduces the absorption. So if you're eating you know, beans, uh, you might only absorb 75 or 80% of the protein because of all the fiber that's there. Some of it gets packaged with that fiber and excreted in the stool. If you're eating tofu, well, there's not a lot of fiber. So you absorb about the same amount of protein as you would if you were eating a steak. So it's, it's not very different at all. If you include soy milk and tofu and these kinds of peanut butter and these lower fiber plant foods, you don't have to adjust much. But if you're eating mainly whole food, plant-based diet, you might want to go to 0.9 or 1 gram per kilogram body weight. If you're an athlete, and you, the thing you can do is just increase your protein by about 10%. If you're an athlete, most athletes need about 1.2 to 1.7 grams of protein per kilogram body weight. If you're plant-based and wanting to up that by 10%, you'll be looking at about 1.3 to 1.9 grams per kilogram. It's not usually an issue for athletes because they're eating a lot of calories. And so it makes it really easy to meet those requirements. And what I say to people is just be conscious of including a good protein source at each meal. When you're eating your snacks, 
again, include some source of, of protein with the snack. And that usually covers it. So at breakfast, some people say, well, what do I do at breakfast? You know, I have greens and fruits and fruits are really low in protein. Greens are moderate kind of protein, depending on what grains. Some grains are up to 17% of their calories from protein. But the thing that I do, as I mentioned earlier, is add lentils, add seeds. Seeds are actually quite a lot higher in protein content than nuts. And so something like hemp seeds or pumpkin seeds will add a really good dose of protein to your breakfast bowl. And then if you're doing a big salad or a bowl, it's the tofu and the chickpeas and any kind of beans on top and tempeh and all of those things. And then again, add some seeds, make the dressing out of seeds, and that will give you an extra protein boost as well. And what about using protein powders or veggie meats to supplement for protein? Yeah, I, I think veggie meats could be a, not a bad plan. And especially for people that are already consuming a lot of fiber, you know, there's not the fiber there, but you're consuming so much, it adds calories without adding a lot of extra fiber. Some people find that they're getting almost too much fiber when they're eating 4,000 calories a day of plant foods. So they can hardly fit it all in. So I think that that could be a reasonable option. Again, I would opt for organic. And for seniors who need... Seniors, it's a really interesting because they actually need a significantly more protein per kilogram body weight than other adults because they don't digest the protein as well. And so they might need 1 to 1.3 grams per kilogram body weight, but their caloric intake is significantly reduced. So they've got to get more protein on fewer calories, which means they really need to focus on, on the beans and such. But often seniors will say, well, it causes too much gas. I can't eat that much beans. I get too full. For them, the veggie meats are a really reasonable option, the tofu and tempeh as well. But the veggie meats really can play a role there. This is just a random aside, but you mentioned some people struggle eating beans or lentils in particular because of gas and digestibility yeah. issues. And I've had some issues with that. And I remember going to a local restaurants and they had this wonderful sprouted lentil, sprouted bean dish, and it destroyed me. Like I almost couldn't sleep for a, a day. And then, and I forget who we spoke with, but it was a dietitian. It I was uh, Matt Resigno, who's, uh, if you guys want to check out that episode, that was really awesome. Yeah, it was great. So what he said is, you know what? We're not used to chewing our food if we've been eating more processed foods like we really should. So for those that are they're struggling with digestibility, I know lots of people that I work with in my family, they struggle with digestibility issues. So he said, literally, when you're eating those foods, chew them twice as much as you think you should. Just take more time chewing them. And so I thought, okay, well, that sounds ridiculously simple. But I went back to the same restaurant a week or two later and I ordered the same dish. And I'm thinking, oh, what am I doing? This is going to be awful. <laughs> and zero. I had zero issues. It was an instant cure, basically. And I probably was just gobbling down my food too quickly because we grew up eating more refined food. You just don't have to chew them as much. Yeah. That is, Matt is awesome. I love him. He's a good friend. And that's very, very good advice. Now, the other things are could depend a little bit on how well they sprouted those lentils. So when you're eating raw legumes that are just sprouted, they need to be sprouted well to make them more digestible. And so if they were a little under sprouted, that could explain it as well or be part of the explanation. Uh, there are not a lot of legumes that you can eat raw. You can eat small legumes like lentils, mung beans, peas, because the lectins in peas aren't as problematic as they are in some of the other legumes. 
And so definitely you want to just be conscious of they're very well sprouted and you're only using sprouted in the small legumes. The large legumes uh, need to be cooked very well because the lectins in larger legumes can cause just brutal digestive problems. You will end up vomiting for five hours after eating legumes that have not been properly cooked, especially red kidney beans. So now, just, most people, when they buy beans or, or lentils, often are in cans. And so yeah. do you have to worry about that with canned beans that you're buying off the shelf? No, never. No. They have been very thoroughly cooked. <laughs> Not a problem. Right. So even so, if you rinse those well, and then maybe even if you're cooking them again, then you're really breaking those down. And Yeah, exactly. Right. They're, they're usually more, even more digestible. The other thing you can do to help with digestibility is use an instant pot or some sort of you know, these fancy pressure cookers we have now, because they hit high temperatures and they really help to cook beans properly. You should be able to squash beans with your tongue on the top of your, the roof of your mouth. They shouldn't be really too firm or they'll be really hard to digest. The other thing for people who have issues with digestibility of beans is something that I do is I often soak and rinse for about two days before cooking them. It's almost to the stage of a small sprout growing on the end. And this will help to reduce the components that are less digestible. So, so these foods have a variety of anti-nutrients. And when you soak, this is kind of interesting, when you soak a seed or a, a legume or, or anything, you're basically telling that seed to be prepared to support the life of a new plant. And so in the process, what happens is the anti-nutrients that are there to protect the premature sprouting of the stored nutrients that are stored for the purpose of growing a new baby plant, those anti-nutrients reduce, the stored nutrients are made more available, and the phytochemical army just explodes that protects that plant against predators. And so you're doing a lot of things that will help with digestibility, but also will help with a nutritional profile and all of the protective components will just like, you know, if you compare broccoli sprouts to mature broccoli, the level of sulforaphane is probably 50 times or even more than 50 times higher than in the mature broccoli. And that sulforaphane is a phytochemical that actually induces a, a set of enzymes that helps to detoxify carcinogens. So very, very potent. And so sprouting is a really good thing to learn how to do. <laughs> yeah, that's something we need to do more of. <laughs> and I think we, you see a lot of sprout, and this is actually, you see a lot of sprouted grain breads and these kinds yes. of things. Yeah. Are those, do those have a nutritional value over a non-sprouted uh, grain bread? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So there's two kinds of sprouted breads. So one is a kind of sprouted bread where they sprout the grains, they dehydrate them and turn them into flour. And then they make bread like you'd make any other bread. But because the grains have been sprouted, the anti-nutrients are lower, the phytochemicals are higher. So there's definitely an advantage there. Now, the other kind of sprouted bread is that really heavy, and there's one commercial type called manna bread that you buy in the freezer, that where the grains have been sprouted and then they're put in a food processor and just lightly processed with maybe carrots and raisins or some, and then they you just dehydrate the bread. And this is 
probably the most nutritious bread you could ever find. That this is the very top of the of the bread world, but it's not a light, fluffy bread like what people are used to. And so it's uh, you know just different getting used to. But where it comes to bread, you know, using a sprouted grain bread is great. The other option is using these breads where you have those intact grains. You see those? Some people call them black breads, but in Russian rice or German rice, where you've got the intact, a lot of intact grains and they're so heavy you could stand on the loaf pretty much. <laughs> those breads have a glycemic Im- index of probably in the 40s, mid to, you know, high 40s. Whereas uh, even a sprouted, well, most of the whole grain breads would be a glycemic index of 65 to 70 or even slightly higher than that. Now, the exception is, have you heard of, and I'm giving a plug to Ezekiel bread here, but Ezekiel bread is a combination of sprouted grains and sprouted legumes. Of course, legumes have a super low glycemic index. So their breads have a GI of like 36 or 38 or something like that, which is really quite impressive. I remember the first time I tried Ezekiel bread, it was when I was living in Boulder and before I went down this like super health nut path. And I remember thinking it was so gross, but I I, I bet that I would like it now. (laughs) Especially if you toast it or warm it slightly before, like they're, they have some tortillas And if you just, you know, steam them a little bit, it makes them much better. (laughs) So the last question that I have is a lot of athletes have issues with injuries or they've had surgery or just workouts in general. And when you're training hard and racing causes inflammation in the body. So people listening to this might not even be plant-based, but what are some plant-based foods they can add into their diet to reduce inflammation to help them recover from all these different inputs? Well, I would say probably one of the best things you can do is juice. And I'm not talking about fruit juice. I'm talking about a green juice that you squeeze yourself. So you've got kale and whatever leafy greens that you can find. Uh, You've got some beets, you've got some uh, turmeric root, ginger root, and maybe cucumber and get it all organic if you can, juice the stuff. And because it you separated from the fiber, the absorption is going to be very rapid. And the absorption of the phytochemicals, which are very high in those foods, the phytochemicals in turmeric, the phytochemicals in, and even a little squeeze of black pepper will help with the absorption of the turmeric. And so you're just concentrating those anti-inflammatory compounds have that on an empty stomach before you eat anything and start your day that way. You know, if you have time to do that, if you don't have time to do that, consider doing something similar in a smoothie form. So, you know, a ton of greens, frozen peas, little bit of fruit, you can put in uh, some sprouts, whatever you like. And then I often put in uh, some hemp seeds, you can put in a little bit of soft tofu, to boost the protein. I do a smoothie that has about 30 grams of protein in the smoothie that has no protein powder whatsoever. It's just from peas, hemp seeds, tofu, soft tofu. And that's a, you know, because it's blended, again, you're going to get a more rapid absorption of the phytochemicals. So that's another thing. And then the other thing you could do is some of the blended soups. And so you could do a you know, butternut squash soup, use a whole bunch of turmeric. A lot of the spices are super anti-inflammatory, like turmeric, ginger, a lot of the herbs, um, basil, oregano, a rosemary, and then even cloves, uh, sage, 
all of those herbs can be very protective. So try to think of how you could incorporate these spices in each meal. So if at breakfast you have your green juice, then you've got your breakfast bowl. And on your breakfast bowl, you've got some fresh grated nutmeg, you've got some some cinnamon, you've got some ginger, you've got, you know, you can add these things to it and cloves. And then at lunch in your soup or on your salad, you can put a bunch of herbs, you can put, you know, put them in your salad dressings and just really load up on dark leafy greens, uh, the whole rainbow of vegetables and fruits, and then the herbs and spices, and even nuts and seeds. Uh, Walnuts, uh, pecans are very high in their anti-inflammatory scores. And, you know, think color. So you're choosing cauliflower. If you can, pick the purple one. Purple versus white onions. Go for the purple. The black or, or red rice versus the brown rice. Just color, color, color. And that will help with your intake of inflammatory compounds as well. I have two questions about the juice. So number one, endurance athletes tend to go all in. So people listening are probably like, green juice. Okay, I'm going to drink like a gallon of this per day. Like, <laughs> So like, what's a, what's the right amount? Because if you're absorbing all this stuff at a really rapid rate, I'm sure that there could become a, a point where it's not going to be that good for you. Yeah, and especially if you're including fruit. And a lot of people include fruit to make it more palatable. What I would suggest is is maybe a quarter of an apple or a one carrot or a beet to make it more palatable. And squeeze of lemon or lime after you've made it makes it hugely more palatable in my estimation. I would say a 12 to 20 ounce glass is a reasonable amount. Okay. And then my last question about juice is there's like cold pressed juices, there's masticating juicers, there's like the centrifugal juicer, like all these different ways of juicing. Does it matter how the juice is actually made? Uh, you know, I would say not really. I mean, if you can afford a better juicer, the payoff is really that you're getting more juice and less of the, the fiber at the end is super dry. There's nothing left there. Whereas the cheaper juice, there's still some, you know, good stuff mixed in with that fiber. And so, yeah, I think that whatever juicer you can afford, do look for a secondhand one. You know, go to Facebook Marketplace or Kijiji or whatever you use and see if you can find a good quality secondhand one. So I have a, you know, a Green Star I used to have a, you know, they've all been reasonable and the Green Star is great. So awesome. Well, I want to give you a second to talk about or plug your cookbooks because they're for curing diseases, but we actually eat out of them because they hit check all the boxes of all the things we just talked about. So like, where can people yeah. find these cookbooks? You know, for people that are trying to go plant-based and just do it really well, I have the Becoming Vegan Express and Comprehensive Editions, but they're not cookbooks. The last book I did is called The Kick Diabetes Cookbook. And the Kick Diabetes Cookbook has about 100 recipes. And these are recipes I just use on an everyday basis because uh, I eat in a way that prevents disease. And so these recipes are good for preventing disease. They're good for treating disease because they're based on whole foods. There's no added oils. There's no added sugars. They're just really healthy foods. And they actually taste really good, too. And then the, the latest book that actually is just going to print in the next couple of weeks is called Kick Diabetes Essentials. And it's, it's not really a cookbook. It kind of partners with the Kick Diabetes Cookbook, but it does have about 40 recipes. And uh, the bulk of the book is more nutrition information. And while it's a diabetes book, honestly, it would be good for anyone who's trying to prevent any kind of chronic disease. 
Yeah, we eat out of Brenda's cookbooks pretty much every week. So thanks so much for putting those out there. Yeah, thank you, Sonia. And thanks so much for coming on the show. You're a huge inspiration to both Matt and I. And every time we hang out with you, we're like, yeah, like we need to like clean up our diet, eat even more whole food because we're not perfect. Um, <laughs> and just your book, Becoming Vegan, is something that we reference all the time as like a textbook. So it's oh, great. Thanks so much, Sonia. Well, you and Matt are just wonderful friends. And I think you are just an amazing inspiration. And so I, both of you, and I just feel very privileged to have been on your show again. Awesome. Thank you. I'd love to hear what you guys learned from this episode. Make a little mini list and share it in your Instagram stories, because I think there's a lot of things that maybe we didn't know. And something that I want to start doing more of is sprouting. It was really cool to learn how there's a lot of nutrients that show up in a much stronger way whenever you start sprouting some of these grains and seeds. It's also pretty cool to learn so much about iron and the absorption of iron. Iron isn't just something that vegan or plant-based people are thinking about. It's something that everybody's thinking about, especially endurance athletes. So make sure that you start integrating some of those amazing iron tips into your diet. It was also really cool to have Matt be part of the show. He always asks such insightful questions that I don't think of. So I'm always happy to have another set of ears, especially his ears and his questions on the podcast. Thanks again for listening to the show, you guys. I really appreciate that you're here and wishing you all the best success in your training and adventures. And we'll see you back here next week.